From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. 5.8 million Coloradans are under a stay-at-home order. When people do venture out for an essential job, for groceries, or for a little sunshine, their minds race. There were times when there was someone approaching on the pathway and it was a couple having a conversation. I was conscious of the fact that there might be like spit coming out of their mouths as they're speaking. And so I would I would hold my breath and kind of try to look away as I'm passing people. And it feels ugly to do so. Today, living under the statewide order, we answer your questions. Why are gun stores and liquor stores essential? Can you sit with neighbors on lawn chairs six feet apart? We have medical, legal, and ethical experts lined up. What do you want to know? Use the Twitter hashtag AskCM. That's AskCM. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're living in strange times. When I got home, I felt like I needed to disinfect myself from having been in the world. Andrew Cook lives in Denver. He went for a walk in the park the other day, like he has so many times before. It was supposed to be a little mental health break. I'd been inside working all day and sitting by my front window and seeing a lot of people passing by on the sidewalk in front of my house. When I walked into Cheeseman Park, I was really surprised to see more people there than I've ever seen before. It almost looked like a festival. There weren't big groups of people hanging out together, but there were individuals and lots of couples walking, and it seemed like practically every 20 or 30 feet there was someone. Cook kept his distance like he was told to. He'd step off to the side when someone got close. There were times when there was someone approaching on the pathway, and it was a couple having a conversation. I was conscious of the fact that there might be like spit coming out of their mouths as they're speaking. And so I would I would hold my breath and kind of try to look away as I'm passing people. And it feels ugly to do so. Add to that discomfort the guilt that started creeping in. About halfway around that loop, I started feeling like I really shouldn't be there. I, I was wondering, why are all these people here? Is it really safe to have so many people out when we are supposed to be sheltering at home? So he took a shortcut back to his house and then felt that need to scrub off. So I didn't touch anything in my house, washed my hands really vigorously, changed out of the clothes that I had been in, put those in the laundry bin, got out my like cleaner and sponge and cleaned off the door handle that I had used to come inside. Cook is conflicted. He says walking in the park helps him think and focus, and it's one of his favorite things to do. But he doesn't intend to go back to Cheeseman, at least not on a nice sunny day. Like so many of us, he's trying to figure out where the lines are, legally and ethically. What's the right thing to do for his health and everyone else's? That is the focus of today's show. We'll be answering your questions, which you can submit on Twitter. Use the hashtag AskCM. First, I want to share another perspective from Betsy Larrabee. She lives in Longmont, and her son Bowden is determining how she looks at this situation. My seven-year-old son has uh, leukemia. So her family has been doing the types of things now recommended for everybody for much longer to try to protect Bowden and his compromised immune system. I've been following this story since mid-February, waiting for everyone else to catch on and kind of wondering when everyone else would start behaving in a way that made it safest for my child. But she knows that just recommending safe distancing isn't enough to make it happen, because even with everything that's on the line, she has caught herself bending the rules. I am a mom with an immune-compromised kid who understands the severity of this, and I still was like, oh, well, 
I'm out and about. I might as well go to Costco. I should, you know, run that errand now that I'm out, things like that. So I think if someone like me is still kind of doing things out of convenience, I think it just shows that there has to be like top-down leadership showing us a stricter measure than maybe, I guess, the whole self-governing thing. It just showed me it wasn't going to happen. And that's why she's so glad Governor Jared Polis issued a stay-at-home order until at least April 11th. It lays out what services are essential. It implores people to limit travel. In essence, it lays out how we should be leading our lives during a pandemic. But life can be messier than an 11-page government order, which is why we've brought together legal, medical, and ethical minds today. Again, you can submit your questions in real time this morning using the Twitter hashtag AskCM. With us this hour, Governor Polis's chief legal counsel. That's Jackie Cooper-Malmed. Jackie, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Jill Hunsaker-Ryan is Executive Director of the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Hello, Jill. Good morning. Dr. Michelle Barron is Medical Director for Infection Control and Prevention at UC Health. And welcome back, Dr. Barron. Thank you. And for an ethical perspective, Dr. Matthew Winia. He's Director of the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at CU Anschutz. And Dr. Winia, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you, Ryan. As you can probably hear, all of our guests are by phone. There was no way in heck we were going to pack you all into a studio. Uh, But here with me, six feet across, is my colleague Avery Lill. She's monitoring questions on Twitter, and we'll share them as they come. And hi, Avery. Hi, Ryan. Why don't we start with a listener question that came in before the show? This is Kimberly Langston. I thought it was interesting in reading the stay-at-home order that there were certain businesses classified as essential or critical, and I wondered where some of that came from, you know, specifically the gun stores, the liquor stores. You know, I like a glass of wine as much as the next person, and, um, and you know, I have guns and concealed carry permit and all of that. I see the importance for both of those, but I, I wonder how those got listed as essential services and critical services during this time. Jackie, what is the reasoning? Maybe we can start with liquor stores and then address gun stores? Sure. You know, I think the reasoning is similar for both of them. Um, And that is, you know, as we're thinking through these things, we have to think really carefully about the balance of the needs of the public and preserving public health and safety. Um, These are not easy decisions to say the least. And you know, we also have to consider compliance challenges as we put this together. Um, we looked at what other cities had done, what other states had done, um, and we saw examples of what happened when some of these orders went into effect. Um, you know, Denver is an example with liquor stores and we, um, we understand that you know, these these orders are going to have an immediate effect. The last thing we want to do is cause people to panic by or, or to panic at all. So, you know, at the end of the day, what might seem critical or not to you and me is, is different for other people. And, um, you know, we had to put something together that we thought met the right balance here. Um, yeah, let me just say, you refer, you refer to sure. Denver, and I just, by way of background, Denver announced that it was going to be closing liquor stores altogether and there was a huge outpour 
uh, lines out the door at liquor stores as people tried to stock up, jeopardizing public health. Denver later rescinded that and said that liquor stores could remain open with uh, social distancing. You wanted to avoid something like that statewide with liquor stores, it sounds like. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we wanted to make sure that we didn't do anything that was counterproductive. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's worth reminding everyone that even if a business is characterized as critical under the order, that they also are expected to comply with social distance requirements like everyone else and allow people to work from home as much as possible or um, rearrange work schedules, um, you know, do two and three shifts if they can to make sure that they keep their employees in the public safe. Let me ask uh, very specifically, were you afraid of a Second Amendment challenge if you did not keep gun stores as essential? You know, I, we considered these things with everything. Um, so I, I don't think it's a Second Amendment challenge alone that um, that we thought of. It was all of it. Everything that I just said, um, you know, the potential legal challenges. Yes, we have to address every time we think of something like this. But it's also just making sure that um, we're doing what we can to keep people safe. That's the number one priority right now. Jill Hunsaker, Ryan, again, executive director of the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. I want to note that you join us from Edwards, Colorado. We know the mountain communities in and around Vail and Aspen have been hot spots for COVID-19. And I believe your husband tested positive for the disease. I guess I want to start with how he's doing and what that experience has taught you. Uh, Ryan, uh, thank you so much for asking about my family. Um, My husband is doing well. Uh, We believe that he had a mild case. Um, My son and I were also ill, uh, but the three of us were tested. And that's because um, we, we all three have asthma and my husband had been exposed to a coworker that tested positive for COVID-19. We can get into the testing criteria in a bit if you'd like. Um, but anyway, the, the reason that I'm sharing my story about this is because um, around the sep- second week of the epidemic in Colorado, um, I was up in Aspen helping um, with a cluster in that area and then came home um, to Edwards and it was the same weekend that the governor issued the order to close ski resorts. And we at the Department of Public Health and Environment asked people who had been in the mountains um, to really refrain from contact with others because there were such a higher number of cases in our mountain communities. Um, and since this is where I live, I followed my own advice. We immediately stocked up on groceries, um, pharmaceuticals, uh, pet food, for uh, for 14 days, and we decided we were going to stay at home and hunker down, um, which ultimately was a good decision because my husband, within a couple days, developed symptoms, and then we learned about the positive coworkers test, and then my son and I developed symptoms, um, and then we all got tested and, and learned our results. Um, but ultimately, we talk about this value called an R not value, which is the average number of people that one person with COVID-19 will infect. And we suspect at the start of the epidemic in Colorado, that was between three and four. You can imagine the exponential growth, right? Three people infect nine, infect 27. Um, But I'm proud to say that because we had planned 
to follow recommendations, had prepared, and I have not been out of the house in 15 days. Uh, My son and I, if we did have a false uh, negative test and we indeed did have COVID, we have not spread it to a single person. And that is the goal with the stay-at-home order and this extreme social distancing. It's to stop exponential growth early so we can prevent the healthcare system from becoming overwhelmed and ultimately save lives. This R not value, we heard a lot about it from the governor last week uh, during a news conference, and this is what you can help keep low when you abide as much as possible by the stay-at-home order. Dr. Matthew Winia, we heard earlier from that man who started to feel guilty while he was walking in the park. Uh, It made me think of a recent article in Rolling Stone that suggested every small decision now feels like it carries the weight of life and death. And Rolling Stone called it moral fatigue or moral exhaustion. Dr. Winnie, do you think that means we're doing it right or that we're overthinking it, if we feel that way? Uh, I don't think we're overthinking it. Um, I, I was very sensitive to, he, he mentioned not only feeling guilty, but to some extent feeling sort of uh, dirty after coming home. And um, unfortunately, that's probably not um, a completely irrational way to think about it. Uh, in fact, if you go out and you are in the public right now, given what we know about um, the likely you know, number of people in our state who probably have this and don't yet know it, the possibility that you come in contact with someone indirectly is not zero. Um, it, it's probably pretty low, but it's not zero, and that means it makes some sense when you go out um, you know, and you come back into your house to wash your hands, to maybe even change your clothes and put your clothes in the laundry, um, and to recognize that there is some possibility that you could have picked this up. Uh, I'll defer to Dr. Barron on the likelihood of picking this up from fomites, from objects, um, you know, around around in the community. Um, yeah, but, well, well, why don't we bring uh, her in? By the way, this was a new term for me, fomite. Uh, you know, a fomite can be any object that the virus lives on that might be toted around or brought into your home or something like that. And uh, briefly, Dr. Barron, uh, you know, I've heard about people who scrub down, they wash their hair, they they change clothing, they're swabbing down their purse, they're thinking about whether their furniture has touched something that's been outside. Is that a level of preoccupation that is justified, Dr. Barron? So uh, certainly when you look at the science, there's certainly the concern that uh, this is mainly spread through what we call droplets. And so it's that little bit of spittle that comes out when people cough or sneeze. And so I think there's obviously different degradations of what people need to do. I think a lot of this effort that people are doing stems from that sense of unease and that sense of wanting to have some level of control. I think it's certainly reasonable if you're a healthcare worker and you're in those type of environments, maybe changing clothes um, makes sense to you. Um, I think a lot of the stuff about how this individual felt about walking and running probably a little bit of an overkill, but at the same time, I don't want to dismiss it because if it gives him that sense of comfort that he feels better, then you want to put people's minds at peace. I think there's so much anxiety. Um, Really, the casual contact is not typically 
um, the way you have to have more than five minutes in somebody's presence. Um, generally, they have to be, they can be asymptomatic. I think this is a question that we don't know. Um, but generally, there's some kind of close contact or if, obviously if they cough or sneeze on you. But if you, when we looked at the early epidemic, when we looked at people that were at risk, if you walked by someone in the airport, we thought that was significantly less likely that you would have issue versus you were in the same household with someone and then got sick. And so it's not, again, to diminish the people's ideas, but some of it might be more more than necessary. All right, let's go back yeah. to listener questions about the stay-at-home order. Avery Lill has one from Twitter. Go ahead, Avery. Yeah, a woman named Meg, she asks about co-parenting. And Jackie, I know the governor has specifically mentioned kid exchanges, right? So, yes, that's right. We have, um, there's a category of um, critical travel or permitted travel under the order. And one of the um, one of the categories listed there is travel that is required by law. Um, so transferring children under a co-parenting order is um, is permitted. So that is allowed. Now, Dr. Barron, when I think of divorced parents exchanging a child, it makes me think about the level of trust we put in people who are close to us. And that could be an ex-partner or someone, even someone preparing a takeout order that they haven't taken the unnecessary risk of exposure. Would you encourage people to ask other people about how mindful they're being? Absolutely. I think that's, again, part of our society asking questions, questioning things is inherent. And I think this is one of those things that you just, there's no harm in it. Obviously, you want to make sure, are you having any symptoms? Are you having any issues? And just being cognizant of that, I think, is so important. And I think it, again, adds to that level of trust and ease that you know, at least I didn't assume it. I asked it. They told me, I trust this person that they did the right thing. And then you're on the same page as well, which is so important, especially in the setting of childcare or other things. Feel free to interview people, to ask them questions about how much they are observing social distancing. You can continue to ask us questions, Avery, using the hashtag... AskCM. So again, that's hashtag AskCM on Twitter. Before she has to hang up the phone, a listener question for Jill Hunsaker-Ryan, Executive Director of the State Health Department. This is Betsy Larrabee of Longmont. Again, she has a son who's immunocompromised. I think now the shelter in place is in effect and people are kind of adjusting to that. I think my outstanding question is like, well, when does testing ramp up? Like when does testing actually become adequate? Because just sheltering us in place isn't like an effective way to just hope that things resolve. Jill, you mentioned that your family got a test. Will there ever be the kind of widespread testing in Colorado that we have witnessed, for instance, in South Korea? Well, Ryan, we sure hope so, and that is the goal, because uh, in normal public health practice, we use a test to determine who's positive, and then we issue isolation orders for them, quarantine orders for their close contacts, and it's a way that we contain a disease without having to have everyone on a stay-at-home order, for example. Um, what, you're, what you're seeing is you know, the result of having a novel virus, Um, where we did not have a test ahead of time, and then uh, supply chain, so having to ramp up um, in a massive way, you know, testing for a global pandemic. um, And Colorado has only been given a certain amount of tests from the federal government. And so um, our goal is to get to a point of mass testing where whoever is having symptoms can get a test, 
uh, the governor set up an innovation team to work on getting critical testing supplies and reagents for labs. So we're able to do that. Um, where we sit today is basically having to prioritize who gets these tests. Yeah, to help us understand what that is, who's in the top two rungs? Sure. So priority one um, is for hospitalized patients. So this ensures that there are optimal care options for all hospitalized patients um, and also for healthcare facility workers who are having symptoms. Um, and that's, of course, to lessen the risk of healthcare associated infections. Um, it doesn't do any good for people who are not having symptoms to get a test the test will not pick up the virus, even if someone's infected. And from my own story, uh, as I said, I I don't know if I had COVID-19 or not because I did have a negative test, um, even with with similar symptoms. So we're not testing people who are not having symptoms. Um, That's priority one. And then priority two is those at highest risk of complications from infections. Um, So patients in long-term care facilities, patients age 65 of age and older with symptoms, patients with underlying conditions with symptoms, um, and first responders with symptoms. Do you fall into either of those categories? Why did you get a test? Yep. So I am priority two. I mentioned, um, and I don't mind sharing this uh, to uh, illustrate these priorities, that my family has asthma. Um, In fact, my son and I take... um, daily medication for asthma, um, and uh, we have a whole management plan around it. Um, And since my husband was, uh, he also has it, although he doesn't take the daily medication, um, but he's the one with exposure to the coworker. They thought that it was important that the three of us get tested. um, And so, in fact, uh, it would help with our um, disease management should we have respiratory complications. Got it. Um, and one, you know, I'm, one I'm going to have to wrap you there. I'm so oh, sorry. We're, we're about sure. to hit a break, and it's one we can't negotiate. But I really want to thank you for your perspective, because I know you have to get off the line, Jill, and I wish you and your family good health. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. She's Jill Hunsaker-Ryan, Executive Director of the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. A Colorado Matters stay-at-home special continues in the next half hour. This is CPR News. CPR News is here to deliver news that's meaningful to your life. I'm News Director Rachel Estabrook, and I can hardly think of a time when that would be more important than it is right now. With unprecedented disruptions to people's financial, educational, and personal lives, CPR News is your companion on the radio, online, and on social media. Sign up for our newsletter, The Lookout, and keep tuning in for the latest on what efforts to contain the coronavirus mean for your life and how prepared Colorado is for the next phase of this challenge. Thanks for being with us here on CPR News. We're talking about daily life under the statewide order, and we are taking your questions live this morning using the Twitter hashtag AskCM. Avery Lill, my co-host, has been monitoring Twitter and has a question for our panelists. Go ahead, Avery. So we've been getting a lot of questions from folks 
who want clarity on when and where and how they can exercise, especially outdoors. Um, so I want to go to this one from Twitter. They say, I don't, or rather, I know that we're supposed to stay local, but are we allowed to leave the county? For example, can I, a Denver resident, travel to Jefferson County for exercise and hiking? So Jackie, I'd love for you to answer this one and help us understand where can people go to exercise? Let me say that Jackie is Jackie Cooper Melmed, Chief Legal Counsel for Governor Jared Polis. Go ahead, Jackie. So um, the the order allows outdoor recreation, and of course we understand that that's a that's one of the ways that people can take care of themselves while their um, while their stay at home order is in place. So the reason that the governor has been asking for people to recreate close to home is because we want to limit spread of the virus. Um, you know, as, as the experts on the panel have said, when you travel from place to place, that carries with it a risk that you will spread the virus from one place to another. And not all parts of the state have the same capacity, the, the same healthcare capacity um, to take care of people when they get sick. So um, we're asking people to not only be mindful of social distancing requirements and while you're in our parks or walking your dogs or wherever you are, that you um, that you maintain a safe distance from other people, but that you stay close to home to prevent spread. And then this next question is along a similar lines, but kind of a different impact. Um, also through Twitter, someone asked, with campgrounds closed, where can people go if they live in their RV or van? Well, if you live in your RV or van, we want you to, that's your place of residence. And so we want you to comply with the order like anyone else would in their place of residence. Um, and that includes recreation. So if you, I mean, inevitably, I suppose if you're in a, um, in a mobile, a truly mobile home, that you will be um, moving from place to place. And I think it's incumbent on you then to be even more vigilant about social distancing requirements when you're outside of your residence. What do you think about the one county over idea? So if I'm in Denver County, Jackie, is going to Jefferson County uh, advisable? And I, I guess I'll hearken back to something we heard from the governor, which is that as long as this stay in place order is in place, this is not about what you can get away with. It's about competing for how minimal you can make your contact. What, what would you say, though, about one county over? Well, Ryan, I was actually about to quote the same thing. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the point here is um, voluntary compliance as much as, as we possibly can. You know, this is an individual responsibility of every Coloradan. Um, and the order really is only as good as, um, as voluntary compliance is. So, um, you know, I, I can't tell you that someone is going to stop you. Um, it, it could happen, but um, most likely won't if you go one county over. But what we are saying is, you know, don't don't try and find loopholes. Don't think about um, don't think about this in the most technical way you can. Um, stay as close to home as you can, and um, let's not think about what we can get away with. Let's think about how much we can help each other. I really appreciated your point about traveling to areas of the state that may not have the same health care capacity as another. So if you're in a place like Denver, which has 
uh, a richness of hospitals, although not ample ICU beds or ventilators at this point, and you go to, say, a mountain community or a rural plains community with a very different picture, that is a a spreading and a burden that you are adding to another part of the state. Uh, Dr. Matthew Winnie, medical ethicist at CU, it seems very much like we are being asked to weigh our own personal health and mental health against the community's broader health and mental health. Are we fundamentally very good at that, Dr. Winnie? Um, yeah, I think it's, it, it is to some extent a balancing act, but it's also the case that those two things are uh, correlated with each other, right? They're related. So your individual well-being is very much um, associated with the well-being of the people around you and the community around you. Just as human beings, we are social creatures. And I think there's an an extent to which we inherently want our communities to be safe and healthy and um, and supportive of all of us. So um, so to the extent that things like stay-at-home orders um, are seen as being protective of those around us, the neighborhoods we live in, our families and communities. I think people are pretty motivated to uh, to adhere to those. So it's not exactly that you know you're giving up uh, your personal well-being in order to achieve neighborhood well-being, because your neighborhood's well-being is a part of your personal well-being, and vice versa. So uh, I guess uh, I'm reluctant to put them in uh, sort of in opposition in with yeah, each other. I yeah, think that's I don't just, think they are exactly in opposition. That is brilliant thinking. I'm so glad you shared that. The idea is not your own interest competing against the community interest, but that these are in concert and you can derive pleasure and satisfaction and maybe a sense of Colorado pride by knowing that you are both taking care of yourself and the broader community. Uh, Here's another listener question about uh, what's considered essential work. This is Christine Sattler, who works for a beverage distributor stocking grocery shelves. I am just morally conflicted, you know, because I don't feel like beer or energy drinks are an essential item. And, you know, I'm being required to go to work. So I took a week of vacation because I didn't feel comfortable going into the grocery stores, but I'm not really sure what my rights are as an employee or, um, you know, what I need to do to be safe and make sure that I'm doing my social part. Um, but also I don't want to lose my job. Jackie Cooper Melmed, chief legal counsel for governor Jared Polis. If I'm a worker, who feels that my employer is making me take part in dangerous activities, what what do I do? Well, this is something that every employer, um, whether, well, actually, I'll just start with employers of critical businesses. Um, every employer needs to take seriously that If you are allowed to continue your business during this time, you are still required to observe social distancing requirements, to stagger work schedules, to do whatever you need to do 
to keep everyone safe, the pub, not just your employees, but also the public. Um, if you believe that your employer is violating the order, you can speak to your local health department, your local law enforcement. Um, the attorney general's office also has a, um, an email address that you can um, send complaints to. That's COVID-19 at coag.gov. Um, but, you know, this is, again, a time where we have to remember we are in this together. So employers need to take these things seriously. It's very clearly spelled out in the public health order. And also, if you have employees who are ill or who are at higher risk for serious complications from COVID-19, those employees should not be coming to work. They should be allowed to stay in their residences. You're listening to a stay-at-home special from Colorado Matters. We're talking about daily life under the statewide order, in effect at least through April 11th. Making sure 5.8 million Coloradans comply with this stay-at-home order raises any number of questions. And I want to bring in CPR's investigative reporter, Ben Marcus, uh, to talk about compliance. Uh, Hi, Ben. Hey, how are you doing? You know, all things considered, I'm okay. It's been less than a week since Governor Polis issued the statewide order. Have there been any uh, incidents of enforcement? From what I can tell, it's been isolated. Um, I've heard stories of police officers you're driving by tennis courts and seeing a large congregation of people playing tennis and having to say, hey, look, this is not in the spirit of the order. You need to break up or a gym class that was meeting outside but was not keeping distance from people. So the police officers had to issue a warning there. Uh, As far as I know, Denver is the only city that releases detailed stats on this. And through Friday, they said they'd given out almost 300 warnings. They had issued 15 orders to comply. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but they have only issued one citation. That is so far the only citation I've found officially issued under these orders. We heard uh, just a few moments ago from Jackie Cooper Melmed, chief legal counsel for Governor Jared Polis. And, you know, she laid out that there are any number of sources that you can complain to if you witness bad behavior. Just expound on that a bit. Yeah, it's interesting. I talked to the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office and, and I asked him, are you seeing any people? Are you seeing people not comply? You're having to issue orders to comply or citations and Uh, The sheriff's office said that what they'd been getting actually were tips from people saying, hey, I think this business is open and it shouldn't be open. And so they have having to do checks to find out which businesses should and shouldn't be open. So there's some amount of self-policing going on uh, in these communities. And I know that law enforcement uh, has also deployed to places where a lot of people are parking to recreate and not necessarily keeping their distance. Yeah, so the Colorado State Patrol sent out a press release last week. It was like, look, we're going to enforce parking regulations. And they showed pictures of cars just kind of piled up and some places parked very illegally uh, and needed to be taken care of. So people want to get out. They want to recreate. And this is that fine line. But you have to do it in a way where you're not either A, obstructing the right of way for cars and parking legally, but also keeping your distance. It's a it's a difficult balance. And there's a lot of education going on. The prosecutors that I talked to said that they really wanted police or whoever else was out there to 
talking about these orders to really preach education before they write that citation, because there is still a fair amount of confusion about what exactly you can and cannot do. There has been significant pushback uh, to these orders by Colorado Republicans who sent a letter to Governor Polis decrying a police state-like environment. How long can this go on before people start getting stir-crazy and, you know, pushing the envelope or filing lawsuits, for that matter? That's uh, some of what I've heard from law enforcement is that right now things are quiet. I mean, if you go through downtown or you go through your city, you don't see a lot of people out. People seem to be, by and large, complying. Their concern is when we get into mid-April, do people still... Are they still, you know, have the compliance gene in them or are they going to start pushing the envelope? Um, The concern, too, is that people who think that this is their God-given right to get out and congregate. Uh, Doug Bruce held a freedom picnic in Colorado Springs uh, this weekend, basically daring uh, law enforcement in Colorado Springs to arrest him. Um, I saw pictures of the event. There were only seven people there and they were all socially distanced. So I think that his rally actually would have complied with uh, the order technically. Ben, I also wonder, we've heard from a listener, they want to know, is there any way to report someone who I suspect has COVID-19 but refuses to see a doctor or self-quarantine? So we've talked about enforcement for businesses. What about for people? And maybe Jackie could chime in there too. Yeah, that sounds a little big brother to me. I'm not, I haven't heard <laughs> any reports uh, of anything quite like that yet. Jackie, the idea that if you saw someone who had the symptoms but wasn't acting responsibly, what you might do? Um, you know, I, I, I'll i say first that I have not heard any of those kinds of, about any of those kinds of situations happening, thank goodness. Um no, I, I think it depends on the situation. There are still all of the sources that I mentioned earlier are the ones I would point someone to. Um, but I'll just point out it's not always possible to tell by looking at someone whether they actually have COVID-19. And, um, you know, in a situation like that, if you are concerned about your own safety, just make sure you keep your distance. I'm also thinking if this is in a workplace, Avery, it's also possible you could report it to a supervisor and say, you know, so-and-so should probably be asked to stay at home and that there might be some teeth there, perhaps. Uh, You can continue asking questions even beyond this program. I suppose we can keep answering them by tweeting hashtag AskCM. All right. Well, Ben Marcus, thanks for a bit of the law enforcement picture. We really appreciate it. Thanks, thanks so much. That CPR is Ben Marcus. And we want to thank our panelists today. Jackie Cooper Melmed, Chief Legal Counsel for Governor Jared Polis, thanks for your time. Thank you, Ryan. Dr. Michelle Barron, Infectious Disease Specialist at UC Health, thanks as well. My pleasure. Dr. Matthew Winnie, a medical ethicist at CU, we appreciate your time, Dr. Winnie. Of course, thanks for having us on. You're listening to a stay at home special from CPR News and Colorado Matters. And inherent in that title, right, is that you have a home to stay in. What does this mean for people experiencing homelessness? It's something that many of you have been wondering about. So we're going to spend a few minutes now with housing and hunger reporter Donna Bryson from our sister publication, Denverite. Hi, Donna. Hi, Ryan. Nice to hear from you. If not, see you. Uh, indeed. Um, I, I miss my colleagues here at CPR. Uh, we're often 
working remotely. Helen Broderick Griffith of Colorado Springs asks this, Donna, how do we expect these folks to shelter in place or self-isolate when they have nowhere to live? I'm very concerned about how quickly the virus will spread in our homeless population. And she underscores that her question is underpinned by compassion. How how would you answer her? Well, the the stay-at-home orders that we've had from the city and from the state have actually exempted people experiencing homelessness. There's an understanding that that they do not have a home to stay at, uh, that our shelters are not 24-7. And in a way, I, I think the orders leave them on their own. The orders leave them on their own. Naturally, there's the question of how shelters are handling this. Uh, First of all, I think of shelters, uh, and perhaps I'm wrong, please correct me if I am, as a place where you can spend part of the day or night, not round the clock. Uh, Help us understand uh, when shelters are open to people and what steps they are taking. That's exactly right. Most of our our shelter system is an emergency shelter system. Most of them are providing a place to sleep overnight. And there's some day shelters. I think um, we should note that a lot of a lot of people experiencing homelessness have, have spent their days in libraries, and libraries were among the first things closed as part of our efforts to reduce social contact. So a lot of things, a lot of avenues that people experiencing homelessness have been able to fall back on are, have been closed. Um, the, uh, the shelters also pretty much exempt from this idea of, of the six feet between people because it's just something they cannot manage. Mm. Our shelters are crowded even before coronavirus and COVID-19. People who, who sleep in shelters will tell you that it's a hard place to, to stay healthy. Uh, you know, close quarters, uh, viruses jump in these close quarters. That's been an issue for a long time and now it's kind of been underlined. I think in a lot of ways this crisis has underlined the uh, the fragility of our safety net. I understand the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless has been testing for COVID-19 and I think recently had its first positive cases. Yeah, they, they tested about 80 people. I think when I spoke to them last week, end of last week, 80 people had been tested. They had 40 results come back and of those they had two positive cases. Two positive cases among people experiencing homelessness. The coalition also has housing, and some of the people being tested are housed in in, in coalition um, facilities. And I think there was one positive case among someone who who has housing as well. Just briefly, Donna Bryson from Denverite, do you expect that the economic hardship in the wake of COVID-19 will lead to more homelessness? I know that there have been actions taken to prevent evictions, and for you know various kinds of rental and mortgage assistance, but do you think this is an event that leads to more homelessness? I do think so. We have so many people, you know, here here in Denver, spending fifty percent or more of their income on housing, and now more and more people are losing losing that income. I, I think we can expect to see more people doubling up. We can expect to see people maybe. Uh, living in their cars, I think this is definitely going to happen. And, and for people experiencing homelessness, you know, there are people experiencing homelessness who were working at restaurants, who were working at uh, a lot of these businesses that have closed now. Mm. And and, and they are, uh, as I, I was saying earlier, that the, the options, the avenues that they've fallen back on have become, are closing in. Thanks for being with us, Donna.
Thank you. Donna Bryson from our sister publication, Denverite. She covers housing and hunger. And we want to wrap up our stay-at-home special with a place we're probably all spending too much time, our heads. The president of the Colorado Psychological Association is with us. That's Rick Ginsberg. Rick, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. You can hear he's on the phone, social distancing too, doing the responsible thing. Uh, Do you think it's being cooped up at home that's getting to people, or is it something else? Well, certainly being in your home and uh, in a different environment than you might be in every single day is causing people a lot of distress and making them think about different types of things, Um, sometimes being more anxious, uh, sometimes checking their temperature 15 times a day, Uh uh, running to the medicine cabinet, and things like that. But I think the entire environment in which we're living in right now is unusual. It's very, very different from what we um, are used to. And so we're reacting to that psychologically pretty significantly. And some of the some of the issues that your panelists brought up, I, I think, are not things that we think about every day. Uh, some of these big, weighty ethical issues that uh, Dr. Winia uh, mentioned or um, some of your other panelists are things that uh, we don't tend to need to struggle with. Yeah. And I think the, the issue of being stuck in an ethical dilemma is that there are really no great answers and there are no really good um, guidelines for those. And so that can create a certain degree of psychological distress. We're a little bit at a loss there. You know, the last time you were on the program, you talked about what we are experiencing as related to grief. You know, we are grieving at least for a time and maybe in perpetuity, a life we knew, a society we knew, an economy we knew. And of course, one of the stages of grief is denial. And I wonder to what extent crushes of people at mountain passes and in parks are a reflection of denial or of trying to hold on to something familiar that might have been safer and more acceptable at a different time. We don't like to look at uh, change very closely. And so I think what you're saying um, rings true for a lot of people. But we also don't like to think about ourselves as being agents uh, who can deliver illness to somebody or something worse than that. And so there's lots of reasons why denial might be at play pretty significantly for everybody right now. And I think that's okay, and I think it's a normal human response. We all just have to be compassionate with one another and ourselves and recognize that um, facing the truth, uh, while scary, and perhaps even inconvenient, or perhaps uh, um, it might sometimes feel like uh, unnecessary, uh, we we need to look at that and, and look at the truth of what's happening here. A lot of your panelists mentioned the importance of staying at home or not trying to just get away with what you can get away with and find those loopholes. And I think that's a really good point right now, because while um, you might be able to find a loophole and you might end up putting somebody at risk who might not be your family member or your friend, the hope is that somebody is adhering to rules someplace where your family members and loved ones and friends are. And ultimately, we're all working for the common good here. That's an interesting way to put it. I mean, I've got 
all my family is in other places. And so uh-huh. I want to be thinking that those close to them geographically are keeping them safe in the way that I'm keeping family members safe who may be related uh, to those elsewhere. That's a really fine point. You know, we think of COVID-19, of course, is highly contagious. Is the anxiety around it contagious? Are there behaviors around it that are contagious? Undoubtedly, I think we've all experienced this. Uh, this is social psychology 101. We're all in this class together right now, and um, <laughs> we're, we're seeing it happen and unfold amongst us. And we sometimes forget, and I think I might have mentioned this the last time I was on, is that we are we are pack animals. We play off of one another, and that's there for good reason. Uh, if there's something for one of us to be anxious about, it's triggering anxiety in all of us so that we can run from a scary tiger with all apologies to tigers or whatever it is might, might be out there. Um, so you're seeing a lot of social anxiety, and, and that certainly is adaptive in some scenarios, and it also is a little bit debilitating, um, and, and, and that's a normal process. Yeah, and I think it's also a reason why it helps to have a balance of friends, you know, so that when you're panicking and running from the tiger, maybe you have someone who is a little calmer to be your guide. That could be in person if you cohabitate, or it could be remote if you're doing one of those Uh, happy hours. Thanks so much. That's Rick Ginsburg, president of the Colorado Psychological Association. This has been a stay-at-home special from Colorado Matters and CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.